Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Forget What You Think You Know podcast. I'm Esther Barrett, an advisor at the Local Government Association. In this episode, I want to learn more about adult social care. There has been a lot of discussion and debate about social care in the news recently, following Boris Johnson's new plan for health and social care. The plan included a new 1.25% health and social care levy based on national insurance contributions to raise extra funding and the promise of a new adult social care white paper focused on system reform. I want to explore what these recent announcements mean for councils, people who draw on care and support, carers and taxpayers. I also want to understand more about the role councils play in coordinating and in some cases delivering care and the cost pressures facing the sector which have been coupled with a huge increase in demand. The question of how to reform and fund adult social care has been considered by successive governments. The current government has now put forward some proposals and I want to know whether people think they go far enough to both deal with the challenges facing the sector and deliver a system of social care that is fit for modern times. It's time to forget what you think you know about adult social care. I start my journey by speaking with Sarah Pickup, Deputy Chief Executive of the Local Government Association and former President of the Association of Directors of Adult Social Services, to find out more about how the recent announcement will impact councils and understand why local councils are best placed to lead on adult social care. Sarah, the future of adult social care and ensuring that people are able to live the lives they want to lead has always been a key focus for the LGA. Could you tell me some more about the LGA's campaign on adult social care? Well, the LGA has been campaigning for sustainable funding for adult social care um, in order to be able to improve that care, not for the sake of it, um, for some years. And in particular, back in 2018, when the government had been planning to publish a green paper, but then deferred it, the LGA decided to take matters into its own hands and published its own green paper. Um, The LGA, uh, since 2018, has uh, continued to lobby for the reforms that we need. Um, We have additional publications sort of one year on. We've written with um, partner organisations to the government in open letters. We've done joint publications on what needs to happen for the social care workforce. So really, it's pretty much continuous activity to promote what is really an important issue and affects the lives of so many people. And there's some confusion around who actually coordinates and delivers adult social care in people's local areas. A lot of people might think it's the NHS. That's not the case, is it? No, the NHS isn't responsible for adult social care, but uh, adult social care and and the NHS have to work really closely together because, of course, individuals don't categorise their needs into one thing or another. They just need their needs met and it might be social care or it might be health. But uh, councils uh, are responsible for the um, arrangement of social care for people who approach them to have their needs assessed. And um, there is a statutory responsibility to assess people's needs Uh, The services that they organise for people are means tested. So some people will end up paying the full cost of their care, um, even if it's organised through the council. 
Um, the delivery of that care is not um, always done by the council. In fact, most services that people will receive, home care, care homes, or other services that they might purchase through direct payments, are provided by the independent and voluntary sector. Councils do provide some services directly, but largely they're commissioning them from the market. Um, and it is the case that um, the market is under extreme uh, pressure as well. Um, the NHS occasionally commissions little bits of social care, but generally doesn't. And of course, there's a whole market for social care where the council isn't involved at all. Some people go directly to a care home or to a, a care agency to, to purchase care themselves without going through the council and they fund that themselves. So it's quite a complex picture. Definitely. It sounds as if councils have a key role in coordinating social care services. What are the main challenges that are facing the sector? Yeah, councils certainly have a key role because even where people are purchasing their own care, councils have got a, a, a responsibility to make sure that the market has sufficient capacity to deliver, which is a really tricky thing to do when they're not purchasing all the care themselves. But what really is important in terms of funding is that the market at the moment um, is not sustainable. Uh, because council budgets have been squeezed over the last decade or so, um, councils have been unable to give uh, providers price uplifts that, have, that, that properly meet the costs that they face. So there is a need for, in some councils in particular, for the price that they pay to providers to be increased. But they face this struggle of having the number of people that, whose needs they've got to meet going up and the pressure on price going up and they, uh, in a sense, have to compromise. And that has impacted on providers. And what it means is that for many providers, they have a mix of council funded residents uh, in care homes. This is um, and uh, private funded residents and the private funded residents tend to pay more. And that's one of the things that the government is trying to address. But who pays is one question, whether the individual pays or the state pays. But what people get, what they can access um, whether people have unmet needs are really important questions too. And equally important is that if we can prevent someone's needs escalating, we should do so. And yet because the, the need for, st for very high level services is so great, councils have been unable to invest in preventative um, activities, things that would stop people's needs escalating. So lots to do. And um, the workforce is the other thing I really should mention, which is that the care workforce is a very low paid workforce on the whole, that frontline care worker doing those in really important tasks for individuals, often in their own homes, uh, is a low paid workforce and doesn't have access to the kind of training we would want them to have. They do have training, but we would like them to have more opportunities. And so uh, we desperately need a, a strategy for the social care workforce, which is, improves their prospects and their pay. I'd like to draw out that point further and actually think about the cost pressures around social care as well as funding for other council services. How does the relationship between the two work and what are the challenges and how do they impact the wider services that councils are carrying out? So councils uh, spend a very, councils that are responsible for social care, adults and children's services spend a pretty big proportion of their budget on um, adult social care, probably around 40%, sometimes more. Um, and so necessarily, if your overall council budget is pretty tight, um, as they have been over recent years, uh, and there's a cap on the council tax you can raise, uh, that you, you can't raise business rates because that's nationally set. 
and there's a limit to some of the income you can generate from other sources. Councils have only got, they've got very few levers to increase the resources available to them to fund care, and yet care needs have been inexorably rising uh, with changes, demographic changes and the increases in the costs of care. So councils currently spend more, a bigger proportion of their budget on adult social care than they did 10 years ago, which means, of course, that they spend less a proportion of their budget on other services. And if you think of that, that alongside the fact that children's services have also presented huge pressures to councils' budgets, it does mean that some of the univer- more universal services, like um, green spaces, like supporting the voluntary and community sector, um, like uh, street lighting, street repairs, all the things that everybody uses, can be affected by the need to fund these very specialist and very expensive services for people with the highest needs. Uh, so it's not just the fact that people aren't getting the care they need. It's the fact that areas aren't able to do uh, many of the other things that they would also like to do for their citizens. So the government have announced a range of policy commitments on social care and much attention has focused on the new health and social care levy and how that will help fund changes to the way people pay towards the cost of their care. The levy will be introduced from April 2022 at which point national insurance contributions will increase by 1.25%. From April 2023, the 1.25% levy will be formally ring-fenced for health and social care. For social care, the amount raised by the levy will help fund the cap and floor changes that you might have heard about. In essence, this means that people's contributions to their personal care costs will be capped at £86,000. Alongside the cap, the government are also raising the floor thresholds, which determine people's contributions to care costs. From October 2023, nobody will have to contribute to the cost of their care from their assets if they are less than £20,000. This is up from the current threshold of £14,250. People will also only have to contribute to their care costs if they have more than £100,000 worth of assets. This is also up from the current threshold of £23,250. People with assets between £20,000 and £100,000 will be required to make some contribution, but the government haven't yet specified what this will be. In short, the government is making the financial thresholds more generous. So what's the LGA's take on these proposed reforms? The government has said that £5.4 billion will go to councils across the three-year period. We don't know exactly how that will fall yet. And what the government has announced that that money is for is partly to place a cap on the total amount that people could be required to spend to support their own care. And in addition, the government has said it wants to invest at least £500 million in training and development uh, and uh, access to health and wellbeing services for the frontline care workforce. It also wants to improve uh, services for unpaid carers. Um, it has said that there will be some measures which relate to um, access to supported housing uh, and investment in digital uh, technology um, and also cyber security. So there's a lot of asks against this uh, 5.4 billion. Um, and the costs of the care cap actually will be uh, not really be felt until after this first three year period. And what we don't know is what allocation councils will get in the subsequent spending review period 
and whether or not it will all come from this same health and care levy. So the introduction of the cap and the and the change in the capital limits will involve some more work for councils and the, the cap itself will be a new burden on councils uh, um, in the sense that they will have to set up the system to monitor how much uh, people are paying so that they can add up when they get to the cap and they'll know when the state will need to step in. So there's a lot of monitoring systems to put in place and also if people who previously went and organised their own care are going to come through the council there'll be more assessments that need to be done. So there's a lot of setting up to do. Um, the uh, And so the, in a sense, that's a new set of things for councils to do. It doesn't really help them with existing services. It helps the individuals who will hopefully pay less over time. But from a council's point of view, some of the other parts of the announcement, we agree with wanting to support uh, unpaid carers better. We agree with the need to invest in housing, but we don't know the detail of what's being proposed. And we understand the government wants to work with us, with councils to to work that through. Um, but what uh, I think we have to say is that we don't see in this announcement the solution to the problem that we've been stressing over the last number of years, which is that the market is unstable, um, the uh, workforce is low paid, uh, and there's real problems recruiting into that workforce, uh, and that's a, an increasing problem and that there's a very substantial level of unmet and undermet need. And then there's also a shortfall of funding to invest in prevention and the services like reablement, which is so important to keeping people out of hospital, uh, but also uh, helping them live, um, you know, uh, as independently as possible in their own homes for as long as possible. And Sarah, is this a pivotal moment for people of all political parties, all backgrounds, people with lived experience of adult social care, the voluntary and community sector, etc., to all come together and emphasise the changes that are needed? You know, it, it is really important that we shift, you know, the the way in which social care is delivered for people. Care homes and, and home care will continue to be important, but we need a greater diversity of the ways in which people can be supported. We need people to have more choice and control, and we need for services to be organised around the individual who needs the support, not slot people into services that we happen to have commissioned or have available. Um, so we need to work with the people who use social care services and needs that support to think about how best those needs can be met. Yes, resources will never be endless, but we do need more resources in order, A, to support people, even in the system we've got now, but we need, we need some resources to deliver the change, to improve their investment in prevention, to improve that reablement, and to improve the way in which we can support people to live independent lives. And we must be really sure to, to make sure that we don't talk about social care as if it's all about older people. Of course, many older people are in receipt of social care, but there are many, many adults of working age, some of whom are working, uh, who need social care support in order to live their daily lives and will need it probably throughout their life. Um, and it's really important we don't forget that as we go forward. So it sounds like adult social care is more than just a set of services. It is about supporting people to live as independently as possible. Lots of people rely on adult social care and as Sarah outlined, there are a range of different ways people can be supported by their council, depending on their needs and financial circumstances. One way someone can receive support through their council is through employing personal assistance 
via a direct payment. Direct payments provide people who draw on social care with money instead of services, and this can give people greater flexibility and control over the support they need. A personal assistant for care, also known as a PA, is someone who is employed by a person who draws on social care to provide everyday support needed to help people to lead an independent life at home. The person that requires the support or their representative is the PA's employer and provides them with an employment contract. Their wages are paid through direct payments which the person being supported receives from their local council. I wanted to hear directly from someone who draws on social care to understand their experience and what they want to see for the future of adult social care. I caught up with Sarah Rennie who receives direct payments and employs personal assistants to provide 24-hour care for her. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Could you begin by telling me some more about yourself, including your work and your hobbies? Sure, nice to meet you. Yes, uh, my name's Sarah. Um, I live in Birmingham and um, I have a flat in the city centre. Um, I originally trained as a solicitor, uh, but for over 10 years now, I've been running an accessibility consultancy and I mainly specialise in uh, transport, in rails of particular interest of mine. Um, I am a wheelchair user and um, I'm supported by a team of personal assistants who are funded through um, direct payments uh, over a 24-hour basis um, and there's six altogether. I wonder if that's more than Katie Price's entourage. I don't know. Um, uh, or oh, hobbies. Um, I like reading. Um, what do I like? Uh, I like swimming, a uh, bit of a foodie. Um, my interests are um, the rights of disabled women, feminism, um, and I also run, um, co-founded a, a group called CLADAG, which supports disabled leaseholders living in flats which are affected by the cladding and building safety crisis. So, yeah, that keeps me busy. Brilliant. Thank you, Sarah. And what has your experience been of the care system? Well, the funny thing is, when I reflect, and a lot of people, you know, particularly people who aren't disabled, will often say, like, oh, you must hate having someone around you 24 hours a day and all of that. And I think, generally, when I look at my life and I look back, I, I have an overall positive view, and that's because I... I see the people that have supported me um, and I've been really lucky to have such wonderful PAs that I've, I've found these hidden gems but the system itself um, you know it's been hard it's been hard work um, so I started I suppose when I was 18 um, employing personal assistants and I've just taken a month off work and realized that actually work doesn't exhaust me it's the managing everything, the finance, the PAs, you can't take a holiday. I've been doing it since I was 18 and I've realized it's something I can't retire from. And that is day in, day out, it is exhausting. From your experience, which parts do you think don't work so well? First of all, I find the whole assessment side of things um, quite distressing actually at times because I've got a degenerative condition. I've needed 24-hour support since I was 18. I'm now 36. Um, and my condition's not got better. 
So it's going to get progressively worse and has done. So it's very, it feels like all the assessments are trying to catch me out or um, work out what we can cut, what we can cut. And that that's not really logical, you know, and it, and I, I almost sort of, you know, I don't, I don't blame the social workers that have to conduct them because sometimes, you know, you can see that they are really uncomfortable doing that and having to sort of ask these questions and try and come up with ways to cut stuff. And you can see that they don't want to be doing that. So I, I think it's unfair on me and them to put us through that, really. Um, secondly, we're not always looking at um, and acknowledging the whole range of ages of people that are supported by um, the, the care system. So, you know, young people, teenagers, what's their aspirations? Um, people that want to start a family and have relationships. An older person will have different um, goals, you know, and things they want to do. So I think we're not, we're not really acknowledging all those ages. And Sarah, what would good effective care look like to you? One where the system itself doesn't create unnecessary anxiety. So um, well-structured, reliable packages where um, my PAs feel this is a career they want to stay in and they are healthy and happy in their job. So, you know, they need to be paid accordingly. Um, and also not a postcode lottery. You know, I'm looking at moving maybe nearer to my family in the future and looking at the rates of pay and thinking, is that feasible? You know, how can that be right? And I, I feel quite fortunate living in the city I do where it, it, the pay is okay, but I look at the, the, you know, it goes right down to minimum wage in some areas. And what does that say about the job? What does that say about valuing that person's career and that this is a, this is a great career to get into? What does it say? I just find that really um, worrying. Uh, the other thing for disabled people as well is that I feel that we need we need to have that named social worker because at the moment um, the ones I've had you know many of most of them have been very good but they just pop in and out of my life um, they're different they're just assigned to me like a taxi rank and they never build up a picture I have to repeat my life history. And it's really emotionally damaging to have people come into your home and you share really intimate details with no relationship, no rapport, no sense of trust. And that doesn't serve me. And that doesn't, isn't right for the person conducting those, um, you know, those cases. Sure. And looking ahead to the future, what would you like to see for the future of adult social care? Disabled people who are supported by PAs um, to be valued, the role that we play and the personal system, the care system enables us to play in society. So, you know, I'm, I don't just employ, you know, there's an economic benefit because obviously I employ a team of six people, so they have money to spend and the economy. Um, but also the support they give me enables me in my personal situation and currently at least, to work. And so I'm able to work. And because of that, because they're keeping me fit and healthy and comfortable and able to work, I can also provide employment opportunities for other disabled people. 
So the day that my care plan breaks down because it might be precarious or I can't find enough people to recruit is the day that there are economic um, disadvantages as well as social as well. It's fascinating to hear that, you know, if social care was properly funded and valued, it would have these positive knock-on effects to sort of wider society. Um, And finally, Sarah, do you have a message for the new Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, Sajid Javid? Absolutely. Value and recognise the role that social care plays, both socially and economically. Um, The role that it plays on our health, on our ability to work, our jobs, our right to a family life, um, to be an active citizen in the community. Um, You can't assess my quality of life on the number of times I go to the toilet. And even so, you know, that's sometimes considered an unnecessary luxury. And that can't be right. It's vital that voices like Sarah's are listened to and included in the government's promised white paper on reform. We need all aspects of the social care system to be taken into account in order to see the right changes made. I want to explore another important voice in the system and try and understand the experience of unpaid carers. According to Carers UK, there are 13.6 million unpaid carers in the UK. Don Brereton is one of those. He is the sole carer for his adult son, Sam. I wanted to hear his perspective on the proposed reforms and also what support could help him and his son in the future. Don, thank you so much for speaking and sharing your personal experiences with me today. Could you begin by telling me a bit about yourself? What are your hobbies? Where do you live? Yep, yeah, I probably uh, start, ought to start off with my age. I'm, I'm 76. Uh, I'm retired. Uh, I worked a long time in civil service, also uh, for a national charity. Uh, hobbies? Well, I keep the house, look after my son, like the theatre, play racquetball, treasurer of my local sports club. And I was widowed three years ago, or just over three years ago, after 49 uh, years of very uh, happy marriage. And that affects part of my story when I'm talking about caring for my son. Sure, and could you tell me a bit about your son, Sam? Uh, Sam is 44, was born with Down syndrome, uh, and therefore has very varied levels of ability. Uh, So in terms of social communication and, and relating to people, he's got tremendous strength. He's one of the most popular people that I know. Uh, you know, a waitress comes up to the table in the hotel and says, how are we today? And he says, fine, darling, how are you? Uh, now, I'd probably be arrested if I kept going through that. But if everybody can see that with Sam is that he just naturally loves the world and, and the people in it and responds to them in that way. Uh, when it comes to many of the skills that most of us feel are most necessary, like reading and writing, Uh, operating a computer, managing money, uh, all of that is quite beyond Sam and and, and needs help with that. And indeed in daily activities like keeping himself uh, hygienically clean, 
shaving, uh, somebody cooking meals, uh, doing the laundry. He is very dependent on others for all those kind of daily living. Sam sounds like quite a character. So today we're talking about the government's recent announcement for their plans for adult social care. This includes a new 1.25% health and social care levy based on national insurance contributions. Don, what were your thoughts when you initially heard about these plans? My initial thought was, as I expected, was that they were only covering one bit of social care. And Dilnon, uh, in his report, recognised that there were people like Sam who needed support for the whole of their lives. And social care appears to be interpreted uh, by the government uh, to be solely focused on elderly people coming to the end of their life who own a property and may have to sell their that property. Uh, so I think they've taken a very narrow focus of social care. Certainly, and the government have promised support for unpaid carers, although we have no detail yet of what that might entail. What would you like to see improved for the many unpaid carers in the UK? Well, my first challenge to the government would be that although they've promised that support, in all their main public pronouncements, like the Health and Social Care White Paper, the Health and Social Care Bill, the introductions to those, the speeches in the House, didn't actually make any mention of unpaid family carers at all. So I think that's a beginning problem. Because if they aren't recognised in the initial uh, description of how policies are going to be made in future, then that leaves them out of the picture altogether. So I think they need to start by making sure that they recognise uh, the role. The vulnerability of carers is that none of us start off uh, being being uh, a, a carer or in fact recognising that you're a carer, you know, to all of us. I mean... Sam's my son, however old he is, and, and I have a responsibility to him for the rest of my life. Uh, but, but you care for members of your family because they're the people you love and you know that you will care for them. But yeah. in, in a way, that introduces this vulnerability because you will, you will just go on doing it however difficult or however detrimental to your own circumstances and, and your health. Uh, In recognising the role, uh, there are a number of things which I think are very important for unpaid carers. Uh, That recognition which I was talking about, some carers are uh, in very low income. Uh, uh, Disability is often associated with low income in the family anyway. And the people who are dependent on a carer's allowance are being asked to live on very, very little money. Uh, Carers need a break. Sometimes they need to be able to go and do something by themselves, living their own lives. Uh, And most of all, uh, we need to have good services for those people that we're caring for. Because not only did we not lose uh, all those day services and support services more or less overnight uh, last March, 
many of them haven't come back and and there's no timetable for them coming back which is very very difficult hearing from don i realize how important people like him are not just to his son but to the wider health and care system and how important it is that the amazing support they give their loved ones is recognised. It is yet another reminder that all aspects of social care should be considered when looking at reforms to the system. In my final interview, I wanted to speak to someone who has the experience of working in the NHS and in a council setting. I want to know what they think the priorities are for local government as we continue to digest the government's latest plans. I'd like to welcome Stephen Chandler, President of the Association of Directors of Adult Social Services, also known as ADAS, and Director of Adult Services at Oxfordshire County Council. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Throughout this podcast, we have found out about the important role councils play in the coordination of adult social care services. Why do you think councils are best placed to do this and what's the value of social care's local dimension? Well, for those of you who don't know me, I started my career in the NHS before um, moving into local government. And one of the things that really surprised me was just how focused local government is on the people who live within their uh, area. So uh, I, I talk to politicians here not about the half a million people who live in Oxfordshire, but the individual who lives on their street or in their their patch. Uh, So local government is very, very well aware of the uh, pressures and opportunities their communities are facing uh, and are really focused on doing right by the very people that are in their neighbourhoods. I am an absolute passionate fan of local government and the impact it has on on people's lives. Uh, The challenge, though, is is that we often think of local government in relation to our schools or our roads or sometimes uh, our application for planning. But we know local government does so much more. Uh, And, um, you know, I, I... Think of local government perhaps as a swan. You know, often you see that very serene part uh, above the surface, whereby underneath there are so many different elements of local government really working to make a difference uh, to the people who live in their in their patches. I think that swan metaphor is brilliant. It's something we've definitely seen that's been you know more acutely than ever throughout the pandemic. The way local government has supported the community in so many different areas. Um, and Stephen, I'm sure the government's recent announcement of their long-awaited plan, which they say will fix adult social care, will have a strong impact on your work. Can you please explain what you think of this plan? So for quite some time now, we've been asking government to put forward a clear plan for social care. So we were uh, really pleased last week, uh, as it was, when the government made the announcement. What we're trying to do now is fully understand what the announcement contains. Everybody's heard the headlines around the catastrophic care costs and the workforce. Uh, But uh, what we want is a plan that sets out the next 10 years for adult social care, a plan that not only deals with the pressures, and there are acute pressures in adult social care, but also for those of us that 
are either receiving care and support today or who are likely to need it in the future can see something that uh, will help us live good lives for as long as possible. So, um, so for me, uh, it was great that we, in a way, reset the, the clock uh, and, and started from this point forward. Um, I, I have some concerns uh, about some of the things I've yet to hear. How are we going to make a difference? When is some aspects of the plan going to happen? And of course, really, really importantly, what are we going to do to ensure there's enough resources to meet the needs of the people today in 2021, as well as in 2025 and 2031? And Stephen, some commentators have said that the plan's narrative and focus is very much on older people and care homes. Do you agree? Do you think the balance is right? I think the headlines have very much focused on older people uh, and the impact of older people and the catastrophic care costs. But I have heard very clearly reference to working age adults. Uh, I was listening to the Secretary of State just yesterday and he acknowledged that uh, councils now spend more on people under 65 than they do on over 65. And um, I, I'm sure like your listeners, uh, I talk to people who aren't over 65, but yet rely on council support. And they are really, really worried about the future. Uh, they're worried about retaining the level of support they currently have, as well as being confident that as their needs change, they'll be able to access both the level of support and the type of support. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who has a learning disability just yesterday, and she had a review early this week. And uh, I know she'd been worried about her review because she was worried that she might lose some support. Uh, and, I, and I asked her about that. And, uh, and she said to me, I was really lucky, Stephen. I didn't lose any support but I didn't get to talk about some of the things I want to do that would need more support. And, and I, felt really, uh, I felt really sad because this is somebody I know and, and we all know people like that who, who need different support, who need more support. If they're gonna live ordinary lives, the thing that you and I take for granted. So there's a lot more for us to do. Building on that, what do you think good adult social care looks like? Uh, good adult social care uh, ensures that people firstly know where they can go should they face a, a problem, a challenge, or have a question about their life. Uh, in asking that question, they get a quick response. That response is uh, based upon seeing the individual as a valued member of their community. And where the person needs help, that they're able to retain as much uh, choice and control over how that support is organized and delivered. Um, good adult social care helps people remain in their family homes, in their communities, playing an active, mem an active part in that community for as long as possible. Uh, and as people's needs increase and change, the, the response is flexible and quick as well. Uh, and for those people that need support, the quality of that support is second to none. And good adult social care removes the worry that people have 
because of their condition, their illness, their life changing event. And unfortunately, when I talk to lots of people nowadays uh, who are in receipt of adult social care, they worry. They worry a lot about being able to do the things that they want to do uh, to retain some of the support they've already got or in increasing uh, cases have the flexibility to live the lives they want whilst receiving support from adult social care. Speaking to both Sarah's Don and Stephen, I realise how complex yet so incredibly important adult social care is to our society. It's not about us who don't need social care and them who do. It's about all of us. It's used in every community and will impact everybody in some way across their lifetime. Everyone should be able to live the life they want to lead, to connect to the things that make them feel alive and valued. And when social care is working well, it supports people to achieve this, whatever their circumstances. That is the future of adult social care we should push for. Until next time, I'm Esther Barrett, and I hope this has helped you to forget what you think you know. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe to our channel, share it with your friends, and give us a five-star rating.